So let's get right into our message this morning. Um, we're, we took a slight diversion in, in June as we have been going through the Gospel of Luke, but we looked at the book of Jonah uh, over, the book, over the month of June, um, especially considering the Great Commission in light of the book of Jonah. Now we're returning to where we had left off in the Gospel of Luke, and so in this morning's text, we're going to see the amazing story of the healing of a leper. Since it was five weeks ago we were last in Luke, let us be reminded that the previous passage to today's study was the story of the calling of the first disciples and the amazing catch of fish and the fact that Jesus told Simon that from now on he would be catching men. And we move from that spectacular story to one that is just as exciting and yet another demonstration of the power of Jesus. And by the time we are done this morning, I hope that all of us will see that what happened here goes far beyond just the physical healing of a man with a skin condition. But it is a picture for us of the awesome cleansing power of Jesus when it comes to purifying those who follow him of their sins healing us from spiritual disease we each are afflicted with before we come to Christ. So I'm going to read through this account once. It's not very long, and then we're going to dive right in and try to glean some important spiritual truth from this passage. I hope that all of us will have a deeper understanding of the biblical lessons in this short passage. So we begin at Luke chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray as we take a deep dive into this short text that you would work in our hearts and help us to understand you better, that we may live better, that we may serve you better, that we may be obedient and humble before you. Lord, help us to understand this text and you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's a very short account here, but it's packed with quite a punch when it comes to lessons we can learn, lessons about our attitude toward Jesus, our need to humble ourselves before him, a need to recognize our poor condition spiritually, and what the actions ones will take if when they were cleansed by Jesus. So that first verse is, well, says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I found discussions as my studies took me in this passage. There are many scholars who took a lot of time to discuss where this probably took place. Um, but honestly, if Luke did not find it to be integral to the story, I don't think those discussions are fruitful for us this morning. Although for those doing deep studies, they may be helpful to find it to look, uh, look into those things. But let us begin our study considering the condition of the man full of leprosy. It is important that we don't ever go beyond what Scripture tells us. 
Some have insisted that they can identify the type of condition that this man had. In today's language, leprosy is usually a narrow definition of what is also known as Hansen's disease, which is a very difficult diagnosis, especially in ancient days where they did not have our current medical knowledge and science to help the afflicted. It may have been that type of leprosy, but the word used by Luke here could also be used for any number of skin diseases. However, Luke does give us this much, that this man was full of leprosy. Some translators said he was covered with it or that it was all over him. And clearly this was not a man who simply had a small rash. He had a bad case. And this meant that he had many problems he had to deal with. In fact, it has been said by many that for these ancient Israelites, the bigger issue was not the condition itself, but the social implications of it. You see, a person with persistent skin issues was, in that culture, cut off from the community. Kent Hughes writes that we can hardly imagine the humiliation and isolation of a leper's life. He was ostracized from society because it was thought at that time that leprosy was highly contagious, which it is not. Whenever he came in range of the normal population, he had to assume a disheveled appearance and cry, unclean, unclean. Think about how you would feel shouting this while entering a grocery store or a mall and the pervasive sense of worthlessness and despair you would experience. Such a difficult life for the one with this disease. You may have seen the movie Ben-Hur. It shows the Valley of the Lepers. They formed their own community. They were shut out from regular society. Families would bring baskets of food and they had had to leave it a distance away since they could not get close. So the, the lepers were also usually beggars because they were unable to provide for themselves. No one wanted to work side by side with a beggar, or with a leper rather, so they became beggars. And then... He said, by Jesus' time, rabbinical teaching with its minute strictures had made matters even worse. If a leper even stuck his head inside a house, the house was pronounced unclean. It was illegal to greet a leper. Lepers had to remain at least 100 cubits away if they were upwind and four cubits if downwind. This was extreme social distancing, folks. Josephus, the Jewish historian, summed it up by saying that lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. Dead men walking. Indeed, to the rabbis, the cure of a leper was as difficult as raising a person from the dead. If lepers could not be around others, how did it come about then that this one was able to approach Jesus? If he were not allowed in the city, how could he have done this? Well, some have said that this happened on the edge of the city, or perhaps in his desperate state, he didn't care about the rules, just wanted to get to Jesus. Certainly he had heard about Jesus, and we see that he himself was determined in some way and had understood that Jesus had the power to help him. So he risks even being stoned to death and approaches and falls on his face before Jesus. Now you see the measure of this man's faith. It's found in his wording. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He speaks boldly of the power of Jesus to heal. He's just unsure of the desire of whether Jesus wants to heal him. But just think if he had worded this a little bit differently. If just a couple words were changed, we would see a lack of faith instead of great faith. If he instead told Jesus, Lord, if you can, you will make me clean. 
See that? You switch two words, changes quite a bit, doesn't it? And here we see a very important thing about our posture in coming to Christ. I've run across many Christians in my life who will actually rebuke someone for praying to God and saying, if it is your will. In fact, some word of faith types will even tell you that praying, if it is your will, is lack of faith. And it's a proof that you don't have good faith because uh, Jesus uh, won't pay attention to that prayer, they'll say, because you lacked faith. But since Jesus himself prayed to his Father and said, Your will be done, I think we are safe to say that if we would be like Jesus in our faith, that faith will be paired with a humility that asks for God's help and notes that his will trumps ours. The posture of this leper is so much different than some of those word of faith people who claim their healing and say that Jesus is obliged to heal them based on some twisted scriptures they use, and then they have the perfect out, those faith healers, when people are not healed. You see, these faith healers have guaranteed that whenever they pray for someone and they are not healed, they have an out. You see, if the faith healer prays for you and you're not healed, they will just tell you, it's your own fault because you lacked enough faith. There was some fault in your prayer. Or you didn't believe with full confidence, so therefore unanswered prayer is never the fault of the faith healer, but the fault of the one lacking faith to be healed. And that is how they explain away all the times that they're wrong. So they can join the weather forecasters and have job security while often being wrong, because after all, I prayed for you and you aren't healed, you must have sinned. Your faith must be lacking, or something else is wrong with you. But that is not what we see in the healing accounts of the Gospels. No one is recorded in all of the Bible walking up to Jesus and saying, you must heal me because my faith is strong and I have claimed my healing after all. No, rather you see them cry out, have mercy on me, son of David. You see the woman crawling up to touch his garment. You find that a man admits he doesn't even have enough faith and he tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. There's a level of boldness in some of the healings, yes, we can't deny that, such as the men who lowered their friend through the roof, yet no demands. Oh, and let us look now to see that really the man did not use the words, please heal me. He asks that if Jesus is willing, he could make him clean. Here we can understand a little better by processing the difficulty of learning with living with leprosy in the Jewish community. What did it mean to be unclean? Well, it meant that someone was ceremonially unfit to participate in the worship. In the case of lepers, it also meant no human contact with anyone, as I said earlier. This man, full of leprosy, has been unable to go to temple for a long time. He had not sat with his family at dinner for a long time. He had not been meaningfully employed in a long time. This man was lonely. He was separated from God and from people. And he realizes he's unclean. All he has to do is look at his arms and his hands and see he's unclean. His desire is not merely to be rid of his skin condition. It is to be restored to the community and to be let into the temple again so that he could worship his God. Wrapped up in his request of Jesus as years of pain, embarrassment, anguish over broken relationships, a sense of worthlessness, the feeling of being an outcast. He didn't go and yell at Jesus and question why he was afflicted. He simply wants to be made clean. And verse 13 tells us 
how Jesus responded. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. In the Greek, Jesus said one word, but our pesky English takes two, be clean. Did Jesus command the man to be clean? Of course, we know if it had been something the man could have done for himself, he would have done anything in his own power already. So was Jesus really commanding him, or was he simply telling him that he is now clean? I don't think Jesus was asking the man to muster up some quality that would make him clean. Rather, Jesus the healer was doing what only he could do. This was a true divine healing. With as much as Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and others, uh, they love the camera, they're always in front of one. In all their years of supposedly healing people, they have never seen something as dramatic and instantaneous as this. Jesus stretched out his hand. We know he didn't need to do that. Jesus can speak or even simply think and have something happen, yet he touched the man. This is how loving and tender our Savior is. This man probably had not felt human touch for years. Humans need to have touch. I read about a man who was widowed and all alone and had no family, and so he would go and get his hair cut every week just to have the feeling of touch. This man most likely did not expect anyone to touch him that day. Remember what his life was like, shouting out to anyone approaching, unclean, so that they would stay away. Jesus touches him, and he says, I will. This means I am willing. The man had confessed that Jesus had the ability, but he was unsure of whether Jesus had the motivation to heal him. Jesus did have the motivation. He didn't say to the man, go dip in the Jordan, as Elisha had told Naaman. He didn't go tell him to wash in the pool of Bethesda. Immediately, the leprosy left him. Verse 14, he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. God had given Moses rules about how a person with leprosy could be declared clean again. It was only through the priests. In Leviticus 14, the rules were laid down of what was to be done for a person healed from leprosy in order for them to be clean again, and then they were, could be readmitted back into society and allowed to go back to the temple. And so he tells the man, go and obey the, the law of Moses. The law has been set down. Now this is of note because we know that one of the accusations against Jesus by his detractors was they would accuse him of disrespecting the laws of Moses. But here he's telling the man, submit himself to the process laid out in the law for a proof to them. I could read you the whole chapter of Leviticus 14 on that, but it's pretty long. So instead I'm going to read you a passage from Ken Hughes, which he summarizes this process uh, pretty nicely. He says this, In biblical times, the rare deliverance from leprosy were certified, were certified by an elaborate and uniquely joyful ceremony that extended over eight full days in fulfillment of the directives of Leviticus 14. It began when a priest met the would-be celebrant outside the camp and verified that he was actually healed. Then, still outside the camp, two birds were presented, along with some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. One of the birds was killed in a clay pot so that none of its blood was lost. This was done above fresh water, symbolic of cleansing. Next, the live bird, along with the wood, yarn, and hyssop, was dipped in the blood, and the blood was sprinkled upon the leper seven times, and he was pronounced clean. 
This initial ceremony concluded with the live bird being released in the open fields to wing its way to freedom. As a result, the blood-sprinkled person could once again join the community. This foreshadowed the effect of Christ's blood, which reconciles man to God and makes it possible for the sinner to join the household of faith. After the bird's release, the cleansed man washed his clothing, shaved the hair from his body, bathed, and entered the camp, where he, his family, and friends rejoiced for seven days. On the seventh day, his head, eyebrows, and beard were shaved, and he again bathed, so that like a newborn, he was ready to enter a new phase of his existence. On the eighth day, the former leper offered three unblemished lambs as a guilt offering, a sin offering, and a burnt offering. The guilt offering was not an atoning sacrifice, but a restitution for the offerings and sacrifices he was unable to make while a leper. His restitution and fresh commitment were then dramatically emphasized when the priest took some of the blood and smeared it on the offerer's right ear, thumb, and toe, then quoted each smear with a second anointing of oil, thereby symbolizing that the man would listen to God's voice, use his hands for God's glory, and walk in God's ways. Fittingly, his shaved head was then anointed with the remaining oil. Finally, having thus declared the leper to be in the Lord's service, the priest made atonement for him with sin, burnt, and cereal offerings, the last being a joyous expression of gratitude. Imagine the joy of the healed man and his family and the communal, communal celebration that accompanied that great eighth day. It was as if a resurrection had taken place. Very likely there was feasting and singing long into the night. For us Christians, the Old Testament's description of these ancient ceremonies elicits incredibly Incredible joy, not only because the scriptures speak of Christ, but also because this elaborate ritual specifically speaks of the atonement through Christ and his power to deliver. This is precisely what Jesus' healing of the leper in Luke 5 is all about. End quote. What an amazing thing for this man to be healed of leprosy. You see, in all of the Old Testament, only two cases are given of someone being healed of leprosy, and those are Miriam and Naaman. And Moses was given a display of God's power by having leprosy for all of a few seconds, so we won't count that. But people were just not normally healed from leprosy. So this is why Jesus sent the man immediately to show himself to a priest, so the priest could declare him clean, and this would be a testimony for everyone that this man was clean and therefore could be admitted back into the society and into the temple. And as wonderful as it is to know that Jesus is a healer, and he is, who can cure diseases, he can even raise the dead, it's far more important for us to understand that the point of this passage is more about the salvation of Jesus than the healing of Jesus. You see, leprosy was a picture of sin. Isaiah used leprosy as a metaphor for the sin of Israel. We see in chapter 1, starting at verse 4, Isaiah writes, Ah, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, people who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you, be, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. That's a picture of leprosy there. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. And many people in that day understood this quite well when Isaiah wrote it and declared it. The leper was not any more sinful than anyone else, but his condition was a reminder for everyone else of the effects of sin. 
Just as Jesus told parables, leprosy was a parable itself, a metaphor for sin. One writer said it was an outward and visible sign of an innermost spiritual corruption. Having something ugly to look at can be helpful for us to remember how God views sin. I'm reminded of uh, the book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, and this might spoil the book if you haven't read it, but I think I can safely say most of you wouldn't read it anyway. And most certainly don't go watching a movie about it. Um, but there's a, it's a story of a young man, and he's in the prime of his youth, and he has his portrait being painted, and he looks at the portrait, and he laments that he wishes instead of him aging that the painting would age instead. He gets his wish, and throughout the book, he becomes more and more depraved. Because no matter what he does, from murder to perversion, his face and body retain their youthfulness. And he's charming. But at the same time, the portrait hidden away in his attic grows more and more hideous. Finally, at the end of the book, the painting is so horrible. It reflects all of the sin and its toil. Its picture looks like a devil, while his physical body still looks fine. Sin is like that sometimes. It's hidden away. Very often, it does not manifest in the appearance of a person. Some very great sinners have been some very beautiful people, appearance-wise. Seeing someone suffering from any affliction, whether leprosy or some other disease, ought to remind us that sin takes a toll in this world. And though the person suffering may not have sinned or to cause their own affliction, those maladies are present because of the sin in the garden. But the great news is that there's hope for the one who realizes they're a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. John Corson writes, Jesus did not say go to a seminar on overcoming leprosy. He said, you need to be clean, you want to be clean, therefore you will be clean right now. Maybe that's a word for some who are feeling tainted, polluted, affected by some habit, some sin, something that has a grasp on you. At the moment you say from your heart, I want to be clean, the Lord will say, be thou clean. Jesus not only spoke a word, but he touched this one who perhaps had not been touched in years due to his disease. So too, the Lord doesn't hold his nose or look away from us in disgust. Others might be put off by your sin or irritated with your flaws, but not Jesus. He embraces us. End quote. The result of this healing, like many others, was that word spread. Jesus had many people coming to him, so he found a need to get away from people as part of his daily practice, as we see in verses 15 and 16. It says, Now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he, could, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. There's much written about the man being told by Jesus not to tell anyone, here and in many other of our healing accounts in Scripture. And they do it anyway. Perhaps he thought his public praise to Jesus, uh, of Jesus as healer was a kindness and gratitude, but true gratitude and love of Christ is to obey his commands. The irony of that is in the Gospels, Jesus often told people not to speak about their healing, and they did. In the church today, Jesus says to be his witnesses, and many will not. How is it that then and now, those touched by Jesus still miss out on the blessings of obedience. Jesus' greatest work of healing is not the physical healing, such as we read about this morning. They certainly were spectacular. They showed his power over nature. They were proofs to those who witnessed them, even though many who witnessed his miracles did not believe. 
But the greatest miracle is when a sinner repents. Our great sickness is sin, and Jesus is our only cure. You may recall when we were in Luke 4 that Jesus angered people in the synagogue when he said this. Luke 4, 27. Jesus said, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, only, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They were outraged that Jesus made this point, that Naaman's the only one around Elisha's time that was healed. And now, just a little bit later in the story, we see that Jesus himself has healed a leper. He had just recently talked about how rare it was a leper was healed, and that only one was healed by Elisha. Now he heals a leper himself. And rather than pointing to simply the physical healing itself, Jesus is pointing to salvation. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, and we might that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Remember from what I read earlier, the blood of the bird being sprinkled on the person being pronounced clean foreshadowed the effect of Christ's blood, which reconciles man to God and makes it possible for the sinner to join the household of faith. 1 John 1, starting at verse 5, says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In a moment, we're going to begin our time of communion together. If the worship team and the deacons want to start getting ready to uh, do that, I want to continue on this theme of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. And one of the many beautiful pictures in Scripture found that I find myself going back to again and again is from Zechariah chapter 3. And there in Zechariah 3, it says this, He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, 
On a single stone with seven eyes I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Does that sound a little bit like what the leper would have gone through that day after being healed? God could remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. He removed the leprosy from that man in an instant. And that day he celebrated with his neighbors and family. This is what happens to the one who comes in complete humiliation over their sin. They come to Jesus like that leper, knowing they are unclean, and they plead with Jesus to make them clean. When this happens, they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Have you yourself come to that place of realizing your utter hopelessness outside of Christ? Have you had the moment like this leper where you understood the only way you even had a chance is to get in front of Jesus, on your face before his majesty, pleading with him to accept you into his kingdom? I fear too many Christians today may not really be Christians because they have never taken that humble posture. This may be the fault of many false teachers out there who teach that salvation is something you get. No humility is needed on your part. We're in a society that celebrates pride. What is the opposite of pride? Humility. What is the greatest sin of Satan? Pride. The false teachers may teach you, if you just said they say this prayer, that's all you have to do. Jesus has to accept you now. They forget to tell you that in order to have peace with God, you must have an unconditional surrender first. You must do it yourself when you can't have someone else feel it for you. When General Cornwallis surrendered at the Battle of Yorktown, he sent his subordinate to hand his sword to the victors because he was too proud to go himself. You can't do that with Jesus. You must come to him on your own and bow before him and be humble. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And you are a sinner who has offended him in every way by your cosmic treason against him. But there is hope. You see, those who come before Jesus with complete humility and shame for their sin, he will accept. A broken heart and a contrite spirit, he will not deny. We can imagine how the family of the leper must have rejoiced when he was declared clean. Yet this does not compare to the rejoicing of heaven when a sinner repents. Will you put your trust in Jesus? For those who are already in Christ, we are about to experience one of the great privileges of being in the church. And as we prepare to take our communion together, I invite anyone who's here who's, a, who's uh, visiting that if you are a faithful follower of Christ, you've had that moment of humility, you've fallen on your face before Christ and asked to come into his kingdom and you feel that he has accepted you into his kingdom, you are welcome to take communion with us. We do not require church membership. But if you are not in that category, you are warned by Scripture not to take communion in an unworthy manner. It'll actually be a curse to you. For parents with your children... We trust that you know your children and where their understanding is. And if you feel that they're understanding enough to celebrate with us, and they might not understand it perfect, by the way, but they can celebrate it with us if they have an understanding and a grasp of what Jesus did for them. 
because this is the reminder. This is what we practice. We want our kids to do that too. So as we get into this time together, we will, um, we will hand out the... Did we hand them out yet? Okay. The deacons are going to come and they'll start handing this out. And I'm going to go to some scripture and remind us of why we're doing this. Because Jesus himself instituted this practice. On the night before he was betrayed, we, we see this beautiful picture again of Jesus showing on earth what's going to happen in the kingdom. What was represented there in a small meal with his disciples at the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be magnified even more. In Luke 22, verses 19 to 20 then, it says, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, they took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So as you're getting your elements and you take that first uh, layer off, you'll get your, uh, your wafer that represents the, the bread. And we'll take it together in a moment, so hold on to it until we're going to take it together. And This is a community event in the, in the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, you gave us this, this ceremonial community practice that we do. You gave it to us, Lord, that we may constantly be reminded of your sacrifice on the cross, your body that was given for us. Lord, as we take this bread together, May we rejoice that you have provided something even better than the healing of our condition physically. You've provided for our complete healing of our spiritual depravity and lostness. By the gift of your body on the cross, Lord, you were taking our place and received upon yourself the wrath of God that we deserve. May we have a great appreciation for you, Lord. Gratitude and thankfulness that results in our obedience because we desire to show our love for you and how we live our lives. Amen. Let's take the bread together. As we get ready to take the cup as well, we are reminded that Jesus called this the new covenant. And so the old covenant, with all of its ceremonies, with all of its sacrifices, with all of the requirements, Jesus gave a new covenant in his blood, which fulfilled all of the old covenant. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the blood of Christ and the new covenant that it initiated. Lord, for those who have been touched by your grace and received the knowledge of Christ and believed because your Holy Spirit regenerated us to be able to believe, Lord, for for those of us who that has happened to, we rejoice this morning. And the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sins is what's represented here. 
Lord, may we live as people who are full of gratitude for that, that we may never take for granted our salvation. May we be humble before you always, Lord. May we continue to humble ourselves before you. Lord, if we ever were to get proud because we believe in you, I pray that you would break us down to humility again because that would be the loving thing to do. We must remain humble, Lord, so we ask for your help to remain humble. In Jesus' name, amen. As we also do on the first Sunday of each month, on your way out, if you would like to give a donation to the Deacon's Benevolent Fund, we encourage that. The deacons uh, find ways to help people with physical needs and and practical needs. Um, They don't always just give money. Sometimes they go and actually do helps in different ways. They are wonderful men of God who serve your church well. So let's help them be able to serve by providing for the Benevolent Fund. And uh, we thank you for your gift to that as well. So on your way out, you can do that. One of the deacons will be standing there with a donation plate. And now let's stand, and Brandon and the team will lead us in one last song here.